thank you so much, worship team. It is, uh, again, a great and exciting time for us here at Geyer Springs. I'm delighted to be able to open up God's Word with you this morning. Uh, Pastor Dave has been going at it for several months, and so today we felt like he needed a little break. We're going to finish up the book of Romans this morning. And as we do so, I, again, I'm praying that you and your family will find an opportunity this morning just to seek God and to be obedient to Him and to His Word. Well, I'm thoughtful about uh, our people during uh, COVID-19 times and isolation, especially our singles. You know, when you have to be distant from somebody, you've got to make every opportunity count. I came across uh, a few pickup lines for COVID-19 that I'd like to share with you that might be of help. So take notes, uh, especially if you're single. A pickup line for COVID-19 might be, you look and smell so good, is that Purell you're wearing? Is that pneumonia in my lungs, or has your smile just left me breathless? A pickup line might say, hey, that mask really brings out your eyes. Hey, is it hot in here, or is it just our fevers and our shortness of breath? And my personal favorite, do you cough here often? You know, what's funny about isolation and being distant is that we're very thoughtful about relationships right now. You know, the Lord made us for relationships, and the context of relationship is really important for us when it comes to our spiritual maturity. The biblical writer Paul understood this, and he helps us understand at a greater detail what it looks like to be in the context of relationship and growing into spiritual maturity. We're in the book of Romans. We've we've just finished the first 12 chapters. And and as you've been following along with us, our pastor has helped us understand that the first 11 chapters are really about Paul's theology, helping us understand the faith. What should we believe when it comes to matters of man and of God and of Christ? We've talked about the depravity of man, that man is sinful, that man by himself has no ability to correct himself or come to God. But that God paved a way through his son, Jesus, and the work of the cross, that through him and through faith, we then can have salvation, that by faith, we are justified. And Paul has spent quite a bit of time already in Romans talking about the concept and the theology of justification, that there became a moment in time where God declared us righteous, that we came to him in faith, and in that time, we find ourselves saved. We find ourselves being children of God, no longer enemies, but finally at a place where we can say God is our Savior and our Lord. Now, by faith, not only are we justified, but by faith, we are then on the process of being sanctified. That sanctify, sanctification is this concept of, of, of trying to become more and more like Jesus. Justification is a moment in time. Sanctification is an ongoing process, really a lifelong journey to becoming more and more like Jesus. And that's what Paul does for the first 11 chapters in the book of Romans, helping us understand our theology of faith. Last week, Pastor Dave opened up Romans chapter 12, therefore, and this big hinge of the first 11 chapters to the rest of the book is about taking that theology of faith and then applying it to our lives. And there in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, that we shouldn't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And in that renewal, that renewal will cause us to be obedient in several different areas of our life. Areas related to God, areas related to to others, areas related to the church. 
And Paul begins to unpack this concept of how we ought to be working out our salvation in the context of relationships. You know, for many of us, how we treat people is really the litmus test to our faith and our sanctification. And we forget this principle, that the application of our theology really requires relationships. You know, if our theology says that we ought to love God, we need to be reminded that it really doesn't end there. You know, the greatest commandment doesn't end with just loving God. Jesus, in Matthew 22, is asked about the greatest commandment, and he says to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, but the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. You see, we can't separate our theology of loving God and the application of that theology to loving our neighbor. They are always connected. And in fact, the New Testament, from the Gospels through the epistles all the way to Revelation, we see the context of believers learning how to love one another and learning how to love a lost world around them. If our theology says love God, the application of our theology is to love people. Loving God, when, it, when we come to him for our salvation, as that salvation is an individual choice, and then applying that love as we love people in sanctification, this ongoing process. You know, if, if salvation is an individual choice, sanctification is a group project. Now, I know some of you don't like group projects. Some of you like to do things on your own. But listen, faith exercised in isolation is not an accurate picture of true faith. It really inhibits your ability to grow mature in Christ. And so that's difficult to understand if you're trying to become more like Jesus by yourself. To become more like Jesus, we have to look at who Jesus was. And we see Jesus was never in isolation. He, he always had disciples around him. He was always going where people were. And moment, moments when he went off by himself was to strengthen himself that he might have the heart and the mind and the will to go serve people. You know, we can't love one another if we find ourselves hermiting off by ourselves where there is no another. God has called us to be in relationships. And isolation is dangerous. And that's my concern during this time of COVID-19, this time of social distance. And the challenge for us as believers is to be socially distant yet relationally engaged. Isolation as believers limits our ability to apply our theology, and it limits our ability to grow in Christ, to be spiritually mature. You know, it's, it's easy if you're by yourself, isolated from others, to never, ever be wrong to never ever be challenged, to never ever be forced to be patient or to love those who are unlovable. That's why relationships are so key. And that's why Paul spends the rest of the book of Romans unpacking our theology in the context of people, in the context of other believers, in the context of government, in the context of those lost around us. And so I want to take some time this morning to help connect the dots between this idea of loving God and loving others. And that sanctification, becoming more like Christ, requires relationships. You know, chapter 13 really unpacks how we ought to treat 
one another. And Paul is speaking to the church at Rome, and the church at Rome is full of believers. And so as believers this morning, let's unite our hearts around the idea that we can grow in Christ, but only if we're in the context of relationships. If you have your copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn with me to Romans chapter 13. Uh, We'll be looking at the verse, verses 8 through 10 this morning. We're also going to be in Romans 14 and Romans 15, so you want to make sure that you keep your Bible handy today. But let's start with Romans 13, starting in verse 8. The Scripture says, Owe no one anything except to love each other, For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Three ideas this morning to help us unpack sanctification as it relates to this theology that we spent so much time setting up. Becoming like Christ means love over law. Becoming like Christ means love over law. The one who fulfills the law loves. The one who loves fulfills the law. You know, Jesus in Matthew reduces almost 600 Old Testament laws to something very simple. Love God and love others. But the theme, the thread, is this concept of love. Love fulfills the law. Loving God and loving others is the final reduction of all of those laws. And as Christians, as believers, because we are in Christ and living out his love, we don't have a need to worry about the law. It has already been fulfilled through the finished work of the cross by Christ Jesus. So Paul is calling the Christians at Rome to love over the law. Now the Roman church is filled with Jewish believers who struggled to leave the law behind and live out this new ethic created by Christ, which is to love others. And Paul reminds them that they can fulfill this commitment not to murder, not to covet, not to commit adultery if they would love. Love their neighbor and love over the law. And so Paul is saying to become like Christ, to become more and more like, his, like the Son Jesus, we must love over the law. You know, what's interesting in the context of relationships, it, it's, it's very thoughtful that we find ourselves being very easily drawn to the law and not drawn to love. I, I think it's easy for us to follow the law without really following God. You see, we can be good people, we can be moral people, and still not have a love relationship with God. And so Paul reminds us right here in Romans 13, beginning to apply all that theology that loving others is an obligation for the believers. In fact, in verse 8 it says, Owe no one anything except to love each other. This idea of owing, this idea of obligation, is a debt that can never be repaid. It's a continual idea. It's not as if I I go to the store and I pay my bill and it's a one-and-done idea. This idea of owing means that I will continually owe other people around me the love that Christ has shown me. It's this ongoing idea. And the rest of Romans 13 reminds us that the time and the hour 
of Christ's return is coming soon, that we need to be busy about owing love to others rather than being busy about making provisions for the flesh. The time is coming, so let's love well those around us, not just one and done, but continually ongoing, looking around those who need love around us and constantly being willing to love them. So becoming like Christ means that we're thoughtful about the love of God, not just thoughtful about the law that God put in the Old Testament. Love over law. Secondly, this morning, I believe that becoming like Christ means there's limits over liberty. Limit, limits over liberty. If we were to look, continue in, in Romans chapter 14, you, you'll, you'll see that Paul is calling the believers not to judge each other, but to love each other. But he's going to take this a step further. He's going to call believers to be thoughtful about how they can do that in the context of becoming more and more like Jesus. There's this tension in the Roman church between the strong Gentile believers and these weaker Jewish Christians. You see, the Gentiles took on the role of of what Christ had done on the cross, and they fully accepted it. They felt no uh, contingent or no... no, uh, They were not bound to the law or the Mosaic law of their tradition, but they fully embraced the grace of and the love of Christ. But their Jewish brothers struggled to move beyond that Mosaic law. And one of the most cultural concepts here, and Paul describes it in Romans 14, is this idea of cultural food and and, and of being a, a people who are ceremonially clean by eating the right food in the right way. It's also very thoughtful about these holy days that that a lot of the Jewish brothers continue to observe. And so Paul in Romans 13 reminds them that, remember, Christ's love fulfilled the law. And then in Romans 14, he begins to help them really see that and apply that concept with this idea of food and holy days. You know, the old taboos on certain ceremonial foods were no longer in force. In in Matthew 15, Jesus taught that what goes into the mouth, that's what makes, excuse me, what goes into the mouth is not what makes a person unclean, but what comes out of the mouth makes a person clean. Nevertheless, Paul was concerned with the effects of his new freedom in the lives of those Christians. He still felt in some way the regulations of Judaism. You know, in Romans 14, later on in verse 14, it says that although no food is unclean in itself, if someone regards it unclean, then for that person it is. So what Paul is saying, he makes a distinction here. He says, listen, there are strong believers, and these believers are are Gentile brothers who've taken on the love of Christ without any worry of the Mosaic Law. They're eating what they want to eat in good conscience. They're not worried about holy days in good conscience. And then there's the weaker brothers who are so thoughtful of the law that they are overwhelmed with being ceremonially clean by what they eat and being thoughtful of different holy days. And it's this distinction that causes tension, these weaker brothers and these stronger brothers. And I'm sure you're thinking, you know, yeah, food and holy days really causes tension in my church too. Well, that's not the case at all. It's hard for us in our modern context to really understand this tension between the more mature believers and the, the, the immature believers. You know, for us today in the modern church, it probably looks more like a, a worship reality. Now, it might be like, I'm not saying that it is like, but it might be in a modern idea of this concept that the stronger believers are okay with praise and worship songs. 
and that the weaker believers are so focused on the tradition of hymns that they get frustrated at praise and worship songs. And so what Paul might be saying to us if he were preaching in our modern time is this. Hey, no, stronger believers don't get frustrated at the weaker believers because they want to sing hymns. It's okay. You need to limit your liberty so that you're not causing them to stumble. Let's look at Romans chapter 14 and and read with me starting in verse 13 because he's going to take this idea of love over law a step further and put responsibility on the believer. Verse 13, therefore let us not pass judgment on one another any longer but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself but it is unclean if anyone who thinks it is unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Paul takes this concept of moving beyond the law and helps the believer realize they have a responsibility to move beyond their liberty. You know, he says to the stronger believer, if eating meat causes your brother to stumble, then don't eat meat. If eating meat causes the weaker brother confusion or anxiety or even anger, Paul is saying that's on you, stronger brother. If you grieve your brother... You are not walking in love, but walking in pride. And it may be a good thing, but if your brother sees it as evil, it is destructive and it may kill the work of God in his life. And then he sums it up with the idea that the kingdom of God is not about food, it's not about holy days, it's not about the law. It's about righteousness, peace, and joy. So he's calling believers, hey, you know what? Although you have the liberty to do certain things, you need to limit your liberty that you might help others around you. You know, stronger believers were probably talking down to weaker ones and causing the weaker brothers to stumble in their faith. And that issue would destroy their faith and destroy the unity of the church. You know, I'm a dad of four children. I have, a, I have three boys and one daughter. And just for the record, my daughter is perfect in every way and can do no wrong. But my three boys, on the other hand, are an entirely different story. And I can look back at when they were small children and and take a ball with them and just be reminded of how we would play together, whether it be throw a football or play baseball or kick a soccer ball. And I remember when they were younger, you know, when they would throw a pitch at me in baseball, I could hit a home run every time. Although they could kick a soccer ball at me, I would score. I could have scored every time. Or I could have tackled them to the ground with no problem whatsoever could have done all those things, but in doing that, I probably would have destroyed their spirit to learn or to grow or to be better at that sport. So what I did as a dad is I limited my liberty. I allowed them to win at times, and I allowed them to excel, and I let the four-year-old boy tackle me to the ground, or I let the three-year-old strike me out, or whatever it might have been. You know, as believers, we need to limit our liberty in the same way, so as not to hurt or destroy or tear down weaker ones around us. And so we as stronger believers in Christ, the more mature, we exhibit that maturity 
We become more and more like Jesus when we limit our liberties. When we look around and go, you know, although I could, doesn't mean that I should. And when we do that, we're acting in love, not in pride. And that's what Paul's calling us to do. Later on in chapter 14 and verse 20, it says, Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. It is not good to eat meat or to drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. Limit your own freedom. And that's a sign of sanctification. Spiritual maturity is embedded in humility and expressed in kindness. You know, becoming like Christ means we put our agenda aside and consider the weaker believer. And sanctification enslaves our own freedoms that we might liberate a brother from a weaker faith and strengthen him to a stronger one. Becoming like Christ means we limit our liberty. And last, this morning, as we continue on, I think becoming like Christ, third, means that we put our line of duty over our loss of likes. Our line over our likes. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, let's look in Romans chapter 15. As we continue through this book, starting in verse 1, Paul continues the idea of sanctification in the context of relationships. Romans 15, verse 1. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak, and not to please ourselves. Let each one of us please a neighbor for his good, to build him up, for Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through the endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of our endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with others in accordance with Christ Jesus, that together you may, with one voice, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul continues the idea that we as believers have a line of duty. We have an obligation. We have a responsibility to move beyond our agenda, our wants, our likes for God's glory. You know, in the, in the realm and the title of social media, we can like a lot of things very easily. It really is the click of a button. And our hundred or thousands of friends will see what we like or what we retweet or what we put a smiley face or a heart emoji on. We do this regularly. And I think as believers, we do this in the church. We come through and we go, I like that preacher or I like that song or, you know, that's a sad face emoji because I don't like that carpet or I don't like the way they did that. We come through as believers often in the context of church putting our likes on things whether we realize it or not. And, and Paul is saying here, we have an obligation to bear with the weaker ones, to put our likes aside and to bear the weaknesses of others. Now, this idea of to bear, don't think uh, it's this concept of to put up with, like an annoying little brother or a little sister. It's more than that. It's way more than that. It's, it's the idea that you would put on your shoulders their burdens so that they might walk easier. It's the idea that you would weigh yourself down because you have the strength of a stronger believer to help the weaker ones. And not to pat ourselves on the back, but for their benefit. 
Here in Romans 15.2, God, Paul calls them and helps them understand that we're called to please our, our neighbor and not ourselves. In just a few pages in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul will say this again. He will say, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. And Jesus models this. Mark chapter 10, verse 45. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Paul knew the strong would get tired of the weak, and the weak would get tired of the strong. And so this is why he says, listen, we must bear each other's weaknesses. And then he encourages the Jewish brothers of the church. And he reminds them here in verse 4 that the instructions of old, the Old Testament scriptures were written in that time, but for us today. And they would have served as an encouragement, as the strengthening of those Jewish brothers, because they would have remembered and known the promises of God and the prophecies of God and how God came through and God strengthened and God grew them. God's presence and his love for his people. It's a reminder for us today that the scriptures bring a great encouragement. And they help us and strengthen us to do what Paul's telling us to do, which is to bear the weaknesses of others. And this brings us a great hope. The hope that one day Christ will come back and return and his church will be ready for his return because we've done such a good job to love one another that the world takes note. He ends this passage, the idea of harmony, that out of endurance and encouragement brought on by the scriptures, that will bring harmony for the church. Harmony and unity will glorify God the Father and God the Son in Christ Jesus. You know, harmony and unity for the church happen when we put our duty, our responsibility, our obligation to bear the weaknesses of others in front and above and before our likes, what we want. Becoming more like Christ requires in the, that we be in the context of relationships. That's when our faith is tested. That's when our desire to be obedient is tested. That is where we can do what Jesus says is the law, to love God and to love others. A couple points of application, just two this morning, that I want you to think about as we come to our, a close today. One, I think it's time for us to evaluate how you, we, treat people. Not just how you treat your people, but how we treat all people. And I know that might sting a bit. I know there are, are a few audiences that we, we must consider when we talk about how we treat people. One, as believers, how do we treat other believers? We, the church, are the body of a different people. Some are strong and some are weak. And how well do you treat those around you who think differently about some of the practices we have at church? Maybe you have a difference in your favorite teaching style or your favorite worship style. Maybe there are differences among the body that cause you strife that really aren't gospel-centric. Maybe for some of you, you get pretty frustrated when you see someone walking to church wearing shorts or bringing in a cup of coffee. That really gets your goat. For others of you, you don't understand why people today still might wear coats and ties or heels and skirts. 
For some of you, you get frustrated that the church is more about political justice and they should be more about social justice. Wherever those differences are, they're not gospel-centric. So God's called us to think about how we treat people in the midst of our differences. Do you love over law? Do you have limits over your liberty? Are you willing to put your line of duty over your loss of likes? How well do you treat other believers? How well do you treat your family? Do your kids know every day that you love them and care for them? Or do they just hear your correction and hear your expectations? How do you treat your spouse? Do you love them privately and honor them publicly? Are you willing to put their needs in front of yours? Or do you find yourself not willing to hear or to help with their number one need? Do you lift them up or tear them down? Do you have empathy or just expectation? How well are you treating your spouse? And how well are you treating your community, the people right around you? And not just the weak ones, but what about the lost ones? You know, it's easy to get angry at lost people, isn't it? Lost people, guess what, do things that are lost things. They don't love God. They don't know how to love God. Therefore, they struggle. And we get angry for their belief system or what they do. We get fed up and we get frustrated. Or we might even just want to throw in the towel at lost ones. But, you know, Jesus welcomed the lost ones. He loved the murderer. He ate and had meals with liars and with thieves. He embraced the adulterers and the prostitutes. I think it's a great reminder for us that we need to treat people the way Jesus would have treated them. And in our modern context, I, I know we get really frustrated at groups that think differently about how we might manage family or how we might look at government. But if Jesus were here in 2020, what would he say? How would he respond to groups like Antifa or LGBTQ communities? What would Jesus do? How would he love them? I'm convinced he would. And I think it's calling us to think about how we might evaluate how we treat people. I think secondly this morning, we need to evaluate how we define love. Is love just being morally good? You know, when Jesus says love God and love others, is it just about living a sinless lifestyle? Is it just about avoiding what's wrong? Is love just going to church and giving a tithe and, and maybe reading the Bible? Is that just love or is love more than that? If the law was reduced through Christ to loving God and loving others, are you correctly defining love in your life? For a lot of us, we, we might appear that we are more like the Jews in Rome, focused on the law and not led by love. Can I just give you a secret? It's easier to be a man of the law than a man of love. Love is messy. Love is anti-self and incredibly uncomfortable. And, and my fear is we've reduced sanctification to just doing good things and feeling good about that. But here's the thing. God has not called us just to do good things. God has called us out of darkness and into salvation, into a relationship with him, to be a disciple maker for the world, to give him glory, not so that you will feel good about doing good things. You know, love wrecks us. 
It's what causes us to empty our wallet to a complete stranger. It's what causes families to leave behind careers and homes to go on the mission field. Love is what brings tears to our eyes as we pray for lost people around us. Love is what gives us a perspective that church isn't for us, it's for the people around us. Love is what limits our liberty for the benefit of your brother. Ask God today to help you evaluate how you define love. You know, as we finish up this morning, you know, the Church of Rome needed instruction to live out theology. They had an obligation to love others and to help put their agenda aside so that God would be glorified. Do you know we owe that to God and we owe that to each other, but we also owe it to our community? That when people look into us, they need to be able to see that we love them. That we're not just speaking about love, but that we're actively engaged in sacrificing the things that we desire and want so that we might love others. You know, Jesus said it this way in John 13. That people will know you are my disciples by how you love one another. You know, writer of Hebrews in, in Hebrews 12, 14 says, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. You know, if we're not loving God by being holy and if we're not loving others by striving for peace, then people will not see the Lord. But if we love God by trying to be more like His Son, Jesus, and we love others by striving for peace, then the promise is true that others will see the Lord. I hope and pray that you'll consider this morning how well we treat people and how well we define love, that the world around us will come to know Christ Jesus as their Savior. Let's pray together. Father, this morning as we consider the truth of your word, help us to understand how we might apply it, how we might be in the middle of these scriptures that were penned so many years ago. Help us to be thoughtful this morning of how we might love others, that that process of loving others isn't really just for their benefit, but really it's a sign of our own maturation, a sign of our own maturity. And if we're so thoughtless to be so concerned about our agenda, our career, our bank account, our wants, our desires, I think we've lost sight of what it means to be sanctified, what it means to be mature in Christ. And so, Father, this morning, would you help our church? Would you help our people? Would you help believers around the world know that applying theology isn't just learning more about Christ, more about God, but applying theology must happen in the context of relationships that to become sanctified, to become obedient believers means that we're seeking out ways to love other people well in the church, in our communities, and around the world. Father, we ask for strength, for guidance, and for courage. Help us to be thoughtful about others' needs. Help us this week, in the midst of this social distance and isolation, to remember to be relationally engaged in the needs of others, and that it's there we find ourselves growing to become more and more like Jesus. Father, we can't do it on our own. We desperately need your strength and help. And we ask all of these things in Christ.
name. Amen.